2: hello everybody and thank you so much for joining us for this live recording of the squiggly careers podcast some of you may have listened to squiggly careers before but if not we'll introduce ourselves because we're the co-hosts of the podcast and then we've also brought with us tonight some amazing guests who are going to have the conversation with on the podcast so my name's helen i'm one of the co-hosts and this is sarah Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming and not going to Richard Dawkins. Oh, poor Richard. (laughs) And we also are co-founders of a business called Amazing If. And what Sarah and I do in our work is we aim to make work a bit better for everyone. And one of the things that we do to contribute to that mission is that we do the podcast. So it's a weekly podcast. And we talk about lots of topics that we think can help people to take ownership of their career. So whether it's about how you can take control of your boundaries, because they're getting a bit blurred, how to be brilliant in your new job, how to have courageous conversations how to manage your manager, all of those things. We tend to do a bit of research, share our own experiences, and really focus on how people can take action. So that's a big thing about, something we're really passionate about, is helping people take ownership of their career. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about work and well-being, which is becoming an increasing area of focus as our working lives become more always-on, those boundaries become blurred, and much more a topic that people are thinking about and, you know, moving from something that they forget about on their to-do list all the way to the top. And we've brought some people to talk to us today to give us different perspectives on work and well-being that we can learn from and hopefully take some actions from ourselves. So we're going to talk to everybody separately so we can hear about them, but just very, very quick, first off, is going to talk to Tom, and we're going to talk a bit about the conversations we need to be having about work and well being and how we can create safe spaces for those conversations. And then Sarah and I are going to talk to Pip. And for Pip, we're going to talk about some of the situations that really trigger your thoughts about work and well being, really focusing on actually starting up and scaling businesses. And then I'm going to talk to Sabrina and we're going to talk a bit about expectations, expectations and pressure, and what that means for work and well being and what we can do about it. So that's what you're going to hear about. We hope you come away. Uh, informed, inspired, and able to take action. So uh, this is Tom.
0: And Tom, I think, is the epitome of a squiggly career. And uh, basically, he does two things simultaneously. He is both a world-renowned barber, which, if you think that puts pressure on you when you're doing your hair in the morning, you would be right. But alongside being a world-renowned barber, he's also the founder of something called The Lion Collective, which is really about trying to break down the stigma about conversations around mental health, particularly men's mental health with the kind of ultimate aim of preventing things like, at its most serious, suicide. I think we have more awareness now of kind of suicide in the UK, but just a few stats to put this really into context. So in 2019, there were about 6,500 suicides in the UK, and about three quarters of those were men. And that actually is the highest number that we've seen for quite a few years. So it is an increasing problem. So, Tom, I wouldn't necessarily have put those two things together, barber, mental health. So, kind of tell me why this kind of started. Where did it come from?
3: About neither would I. When I started out in the hair industry when I was 18, I never thought I'd be uh, an ambassador for mental health and suicide prevention. It started out in 2015. There was a... Uh, on a Facebook group, a barber's Facebook group, my idea was I was going to create a collection of images, like a lookbook of lots of different haircuts, that we would then sell to raise money for a charity. I gathered 30 of the probably biggest and well-known barbers in the industry that I knew. Got them to donate an image of a haircut, which you think would be simple, but it was probably one of the most stressful things I've ever done (laughs) to this day. It's like herding cats a little bit. But um, we got there, got it done, and I was trying to think about what we are going to do it for. And one of the guys, Paul Mack from Ireland, suggested suicide prevention and mental health awareness. And I'd actually lost a friend to suicide a year before, and I didn't know that he was suffering. And I thought, how could I have missed that As a charity, if I've been affected by it directly, but I was completely unaware that suicide prevention or mental health charities were things that we could raise money for or raise awareness for, that made me think how many people out there are struggling alone, suffering and don't know where to go, or what to do. So that's kind of how it started. It's just a one-off project. Well, we realised very quickly that it could be a lot more than that.
0: So talk to me a bit. I actually went down, Tom runs something called Barber Talk Light, which is a mental health first aid training. So I turned up with lots of barbers feeling, again, very self-conscious about my hair to do one of Tom's training sessions. And talk to everybody a bit about that relationship between somebody cutting your hair and the conversations that that can start and how powerful they can be.
3: We did the one... It was going to be a one-off project, and I realised very quickly that, actually, as barbers and hairdressers, it had been joked about since I started at Tony and Guy that my manager said to me, he goes, oh, you're going to be a therapist now, you're going to be a psychiatrist, you're going to listen to everyone's problems. And it's been joked about in the hair industry for years that we are a poor man's psychiatrist. <laughs> but but <laughs> it's just the way it is. But, you know, I realised that we... There's a lot of trust in our barbers. We have a connection. We uh, have the license to touch. You have a conversation uninterrupted for maybe 30 minutes an hour. if you're having your hair colored as a girl, you have two, three hours maybe. And you don't very often have that time away from the chaos of life, having a one-to-one conversation with people. Plus, you know, I'm running my fingers through a guy's beard or through his neck or through his hair, or which would just be weird if I just came up to anyone in the room and started touching <laughs> you. But if you're sat in front of me in a barber's chair, it's perfectly normal. And that connection there... You know, I've known people for maybe 20 years, and they've told me everything mm-hmm. from first date with their now wife their engagement ring before they show anyone else they showed me baby names they've told me about miscarriages they've told me about affairs they've told me about all these different things but I never see them outside of those four walls of the barbershop so we've got a very strong relationship but we're also disconnected so I think they feel they can trust us so I realized that actually as hairdressers barbers we're listening a lot of the time we're good listeners have good empathy what if we could train those people hairdressers and barbers to be more effective? So that's where we come up with the idea for Barber Talk, after doing mental health first aid training myself, assist suicide prevention, safe talk, and trying to get barbers to come to that. It was too... For the feedback from the barbers, it was a bit too heavy for them. Two days off work, most of them are self-employed. They didn't really want to go and talk about suicide for two days in that depth. So that's where we worked together with leading psychiatrists to develop Barber Talk training.
0: So I guess the catalyst for this from you was a very tough moment personally with your friend... But since you've started kind of the Lion Collective, what sort of success stories and kind of positive things have you... What impact are they having?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's been... Incredible, really. The response that we've had, it was just an idea, I never really had to push it or anything. It's kind of happened organically, really, and um, it's sort of run away for itself, and I'm still trying to catch up with the idea right now. But it's that whole thing of giving those barbers those four pillars of the Barber Talk, to be able to recognise the signs, be able to ask the the right, direct questions, ones that we wouldn't normally ask things like, are you suicidal, are you you depressed? Those sort of questions that people find very difficult to ask, because we're scared of the answer. So once they've recognised the signs, they've asked those questions, teaching them how to listen with empathy and without judgement and not trying to solve the problem and jump in. Because we feel like we've got to solve the problem, don't we, all the time. Actually let people talk, they solve it themselves a lot of the time. And then finally help. So we want to give them the knowledge to be able to pass that person on to the resources that are available. So the idea is to recognize the signs and then help them pass it on. So we're not left holding the ball, trying to solve a problem that we shouldn't be trying to solve, bridging the gap between the community we serve and the resources that are available already. And through that training, we've managed to save lives. We saved our first life. I remember saving was my friend, Paul, I thought if we could save one life starting this off, it would be worthwhile. But you know, when that happened, it seemed to snowball. More people would tell us that you know, if it wasn't for you guys, then we wouldn't be here anymore. If it wasn't, there was no stigma or no taboo to walk into the barber shop and sit there and tell my barber, who's been trained, and he had knowledge of where to go. And I wasn't going to be diagnosed or something with something or prescribed something. It was much more relax like that and probably the biggest reward out of all of this I think I told you before was I sold my salon now so I can do the charity most full-time and my global barber director stuff and on the last day a guy came in and bought me a card that I hadn't seen before and I thought it was just like a thank you card or well done or whatever maybe congratulations and I got home and I opened the card and it was actually from Paul's parents thanking me if it wasn't for me then they would have lost their son I think that is the biggest reward out of everything. And, you know, when I sold my and my accountant was like, What are you doing? <laughs> my parents were like, What are you doing? You're getting rid of your business and they well that is worth while doing just for that.
0: And I think one of the things that actually really struck me and perhaps surprised me when I came and did the training was also how strong the community that you've built is in terms of the people who are coming to be the trainers and then the ambassadors and how that community in its own right is almost taking on a bit of a life of its own. So talk to me a bit about how that's kind of developing and kind of your model, I guess, in terms of how you're going to keep building the Lion Collective? Because at, yeah. your, at the moment, like you say, it can't just be you all of the time.
3: No, no I, want it, I don't want it to be me. I want it to yes. be separate from me as possible, really. Eventually, I don't want it... I want it just to just be the Lion's Barber Collective... Don't think of Tom Chapman, you know, there's loads of other people doing that. And we've got ambassadors that are friends of mine throughout the hair industry who are quite influential within the industry, have helped us grow the spread the word. And then we have now have prospects who want to become an ambassador, so they have to kind of prove themselves and come along to the training and come along. We do like we do safe space pop-ups at different events. So we're doing stuff with Cardiff Rugby and Exeter Chiefs and Cardiff City Football Club, you know, where guys gather and are emotionally charged you know it's okay for you to cry on your stranger's shoulder when your football team loses but not in normal life which is you know but we want to get into those kind of spaces as well so they come along and do that and then we are looking trying to build up we want to get into the curriculum really we want to get barber talking to the hair curriculum make it part of the health and safety we were in Westminster a couple of weeks ago discussing it we're going back up there next week to try and do that because if we can do that we can train the future generations and in 20 years time The whole hair industry is trained.
0: So thank you so much, Tom. If people would like to learn more about Tom and the work that he does, he did an incredible TED Talk that you can go and watch and you can go onto the Lion Collective website and we'll come back to Tom at the end when we ask everyone for their best piece of career advice. But thank you so much for coming.
3: Thank you. Thank you, everyone.
2: So our next guest is the lovely Pip Murray, and I first became aware of Pip uh, around about 2015, so I used to work for Virgin. I remember some sachets of almond butter were getting shared around the office, and I remember like squeezing to my mouth, being like, this is amazing, what is this stuff? And it was like, oh, it's a new business that Virgin is somewhere involved in called Pip and Nut. And... Pip Murray is the founder of Pippinut. And And I have to tell you, since that moment, I'm honestly like an addict. Are you hooked? I am. I mean, I could talk for an hour about almond butter. I won't because it's not that related to work and well-being. But, yeah, suffice to say, one kilogram tubs... I've had to ration myself to like a weekly pot. Well done. I that's, share it with my family. That's strength right yeah. there. So proper almond butter Pippin nut fan right here. But one of the things we really want to talk about with um, Pip is actually some of the challenges of starting up a business and scaling a business. More and more people are starting ventures, so whether it's as a side project or whether it's something they want to become their kind of full-time role, it's more common in the world of work now that people are looking to do that. But it brings a whole new set of pressures into how... We manage our careers. And as someone who has had the startup and is now scaling up, I think, is Pippin' not available in over... Is it the thing I saw was over 2,300 outlets. Is it even more now? 6,000. Oh, no. my goodness. I thought it might be old, old data. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's scaled up a business to that extent, what challenges have you experienced in terms of your well-being and your, your ability to spend time thinking about your well-being when you are the founder of a rapidly scaling business?
4: I think with a scaling business, it sort of it moves without you kind of necessarily being always fully in control of it. And it, every year of the business kind of growing, my job has changed. And with that, my stretch and learning has to kind of move with that. And I guess from a kind of wellness experience, that also changes. So the first couple of years I set up the business and we launched in 2015. And I spent two years prior to that setting up the company. And I'm a sole founder, so I set the business up by myself. And I think those first two years are incredibly lonely. I mean, if anyone's in that stage, I kind of feel for you because it's both really terrifying because you're kind of exposing yourself to a whole new swathe of stuff that you don't know anything about. And context here was that I was a theatre producer before I started up a food brand. So not a commercial bone in my body, let alone knowing how to manufacture anything. And you're doing it all by yourself. And I was 24 at the time. So really kind of fresh faced didn't really have a clue, but incredibly stressful. And I think isolating in the sense that nobody really understands what it is that you're trying to create. It's all in your head at that particular moment when you're in that startup phase. And, Um, yeah, you're kind of navigating something that's just really, really hard and trying to get support along the way. So, and especially when you're doing it as a sole founder, I think you two are lucky to have found people, you know, a pair of you that can support each other. And then I think once the business launches and like you've got the momentum and you're kind of growing and scaling it, again, it's a bit of an adrenaline rush, but with that comes monumental F-ups. And yeah, those moments are, again, terrifying. I mean, as an example, I remember don't want to bring in Brexit because it's not a particularly like fun topic we've all heard too much about it but I remember the day that that got announced and we buy a lot of our products in Europe and we're exposed by the exchange rate and it wasn't something that I'd ever really thought about in terms of that impacting me and and the company so significantly and it like wiped out 10% of our margin which for a food and drink brand is mm really really brutal and I remember just thinking I don't know what we're going to do I've got a team here in front of me that I've got to be strong for and it's that back to that kind of isolation point where you feel a little bit exposed and you're being relied upon to continue to pay the people that are within your business and continue to maintain the brand and scale it. and the positive things with all this is that you do figure it out most of the time and no challenges something you can't navigate but it doesn't mean in those moments where you hit something completely new it's not incredibly difficult when you sit there head in hand I remember I walked out of the office and went for a cry around the park um, and called my accountant uh, which was really <laughs> sad and yeah it was particularly bleak but then you know look at us now we're fine and you kind of as you move throughout the business those big challenges you kind of look back on and you think you feel stronger coming through them and it's those sort of perspective when you hit challenges as the business now grows you can be like well I managed to get over that thing so I can probably get over this thing so I think experience annoyingly is also part of that yeah and have you now got things that you've
2: consciously put in place whether it's things that you do with the team or things that you do for yourself that help you to sort of preempt some of Mm -hmm. those f up type things so that you're a bit more resilient when they might happen
4: yeah I mean I think ultimately it is about having sort of a support network around you so hiring the right people is the first port of call I mean I've got a team now so they are incredibly experienced they're much smarter than I am they know what they're doing and actually they kind of protect me and I think also when you're in that startup phase you are having to juggle your cash flow you're having to manage the supply chain be the face and the PR person and then you've got to do the social media on the side And slowly but surely, your job slightly streamlines and actually you can be more focused. And I do find not being the person to constantly manage the day-to-day cash flow of the business, although I'm aware of what's going on, actually does lift a weight off you because you're not constantly worrying, like, how much money is in the bank. So those sorts of things. If you build a team, you start to be able to get a bit more balance. And I think one of the things I've found, particularly in our... Like, we're five years old now, but in sort of the first couple of years... I would just say yes to, like, absolutely everything. It didn't matter what it was. A packet of crisps opening, I'd be there. Like, you know, it was just... You know, I'd just sign myself up for stuff. Thank you for saying yes to this before yeah. you started. This is a really good packet of crisps. Um, and, yeah, you just find yourself running like a mad woman all around London and just sort of not really knowing what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think now it's about trying to create some real structure within your day and actually be clear about what it is that you're doing that week, that month, that year, and saying no to loads more things because... Yeah, there are always going to be opportunities, but everything's an opportunity cost. So if you really want to be focusing on, I don't know, sustainability, but you're running around doing lots of PR stuff, you're not going to be able to focus on some of those really important things. So getting a bit of control, I think, around your day helps. Although I think inevitably it's a startup it happens Um,
2: Sarah will tell you I do love like a cheesy quote but I think there might be one in the making there like that everything's an opportunity but everything else is an opportunity cost yeah there we go like like learning to say no I'm sure I saw that I knew you'd get one in there I knew I'd find one
0: And what about, Pip, um, you do a lot of exercise. Yeah. So you kind of talk a lot about, I think last year you did the Amsterdam Marathon, yeah. you've done the London Marathon. Yeah. I think you've publicly said you're going to do the Rome 1. Yeah. Are you yeah. committing to that? <laughs> do you want to commit to that on a podcast? <laughs> God, no. But you've also talked about the things that you do with your team. So when you do yeah. team days, yeah. you talked about, um, I think, something called like a sound bath, which I was really intrigued yeah. to find yeah. out more about. So what, like, sort of things around, you know, whether it's physical fitness or just thinking about your well-being generally, whether that's kind of meditation, mm-hmm. mindfulness, What sort of things have you brought into the business now that you're five years old to think, I know this helps us all to kind of stay well?
4: Um, it's been a big focus actually over the past couple of years we as business certifies as a b corp in the summer which is essentially a business that balances sort of profit and purpose and with that it covers loads of things but within it is people is a really key pillar and a lot of that is down to how you treat your team how you operate as a company and how you know as an employer what your responsibilities so a lot of the focus has been like how do we create an environment that really supports our team members and i think there are kind of lovely things that you can do, that team bonding stuff, like uh, we've done all sorts from trapezing to sound baths, which are really quite odd um, experiences, <laughs> quite different as well. But I think actually it's the basics that you've got to get right. So we introduce things like flexi time and working from home days. So we have core hours, 10 till 4, and then people can flex either side. And I think if you are have an environment which is probably quite stressful, you know, in terms of a fast-paced business, it's moving... But then people also have to balance their life, whether they're caring for someone or have family, whatever it is. I think things like that, having flexibility within the company is probably the most important thing it doesn't really matter if you have we have nice breakfast in the morning and all sorts of different lovely things but I think those are the things that are meaningful mm. I think we sometimes get slightly distracted don't we by those like shiny objects yeah. of table
0: tennis tables or like yeah. beanbags bags or whatever yeah. it is but actually fundamentally it's like can I make work work with the rest of my life yeah do I feel like my employer actually really cares about me
4: because I think that's when I tend to feel most kind of wound up and Stress is when my life is starting to cave in and, like, work is absorbed over everything. And so even simple things like working from home one day a week can create a sense of calm. If I'm experiencing that, if I benefit from that, then I think surely my team do. So, yeah, I think that that sort of thing is really important.
0: And how have you built your resilience over time? So you've talked a bit about, of course, things go wrong. But I think having been in those kind of environments, they're incredibly fast paced. Mm -hmm. I think we all need now in our careers more resilience than ever before because of the amount of change and ambiguity Mm -hmm. that we're all experiencing. Some of it we're in control of, some of it less so. Mm -hmm. What have you felt you've kind of done well in terms of that ability to kind of bounce back Mm -hmm yes, sometimes it might be Brexit, sometimes it might just be a tough day, you know, and everything kind of in between.
4: Yeah, I mean, I remember once when I was starting out that someone once told me, like, as a leader in a business, you should never have a bad day or show that you're having a bad day, which I was probably actually one of the worst pieces of advice I've ever been given, because at least for the first couple of years, I was like, yeah, if I was having a terrible day, I'd walk into the office and be like, I'm all right, I'm all good, and I'd kind of pop back in, Just and then behind the scenes, I'd be like, this is awful. And actually now, I think it doesn't mean that you have to go in and be a dark cloud in the office but I think if you've got some core people in your team or whether it's you know mentor or whatever and you can sort of talk openly about something that's actually hard to your very point it's not so much about solving the problem it's just about share- sharing and feeling like that other people are there to support you so I think there is an element of like recognizing when things are difficult and just telling other people and not pretending like things are okay because that's I think ultimately the worst thing
0: and you've talked about mentoring I think lots of people ask us about mentoring and how do I find a mentor are mentors important what's that process been like for you because it sounds like it's been quite important during the last five years
4: yeah, and I think particularly starting up the business by myself, having a really great mentor is my version of a co-founder if I ever had one. So important. I think finding a mentor that is difficult, so it's not actually that easy in the same way I think it probably is as a, to find a co-founder, but finding someone that firstly has either been on a startup journey or really understands what startup is, ideally works in the industry that you're in, Really, really helps, and there is a lot around kind of I think just general rapport and working styles that you have to kind of figure out whether or not they're right for you. I met my my mentor, who's a guy called Giles Brook. He runs VitaCoco; it's a coconut water drink, as amongst other things. And I met him through my branding agency, actually, and. From the get-go, I think he just really understood the brand. He's actually our largest investor now, so it also was quite beneficial <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> oh, useful! <Brilliant>. Very strategic. <laughs> but actually, it was—it has been brilliant because he is a sort of person that always has a. Bigger war story or kind of war wound, whatever you want to call it. So, whenever I come to him with a problem, he'll be like, Don't worry, I've got something to top this. And it's suddenly that's what makes you feel so much better. But it's not just that, it's somebody that is a bit of a coach. So, particularly when you're talking about being a leader or a team, that's actually really hard. And I never knew how to run a company or manage a team. And actually, having someone to kind of be that support and ear to kind of lend your neuroses or be able to speak a little bit about like what's yeah. going on in your head around how do I manage that team member or you know I'm not really sure about how to do um personal development plans or all these whatever it happens to be they can be a kind of support in that sense a coach. Pip
2: thank you so much for sharing the last 5 years and what you've learned and hopefully people can think a little bit about their support systems and how they can build some of those kind of well-being practices sound baths awesome. <laughs> Maybe into what they're doing. Thank you very very much for sharing. Thank you.
1: Thank you Pip.
2: I am delighted to welcome our third and final guest to this week's podcast. This is Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who I was introduced to a few months ago now. And let me kind of tell you what Sabrina does, and then I'll tell you why when I first heard about what Sabrina does, I, I didn't even know what to say. I was kind of, like, breathtaking by everything that Sabrina does. So Sabrina is a chief fire officer, amazing role, also saving lives. I think quite interesting um, that you're both doing that. Sabrina's also a psychologist. She's also an author of a book called The Heat of the Moment and a working parent, too. So I think all of those things are absolutely amazing, individually, but when they're put collectively, it's very special. But the thing that I think really took my breath away was when I heard Sabrina talk about, you know, we talk on amazing, squiggly career journeys, and I think you've got a squiggly life journey. And just a few of the things that really stuck out for me. So Sabrina was homeless for two years when you were 15. You sold the big issue to raise money to have secure and stable accommodation because... You you were homeless and it was anything but stable and secure. And just, you know, some very upsetting stories that you shared from that time. And the resilience is amazing. You joined the fire service and faced significant amounts of discrimination when you joined. Then progressed in the fire service despite that discrimination. Did a PhD to support with decision making in the fire service and how to reduce human error as in decisions that would affect people's lives and some of the the research has now been implemented by the fire service and it's changed the way the fire service manages things I mean it's amazing everybody I was like oh wow I'm total awe and I Instagrammed Sabrina straight away and I was like I need to to talk to you on the podcast so honestly there's so much you can learn and Sabrina's book is amazing and we'll talk about book signings later on so you can kind of maybe go and, and speak to Sabrina about it but my reflection of it all is there's so much pressure in what you do as chief fire officer, so many people's lives are entrusted into kind of your strategic thinking about what they're doing. How do you cope with the pressure? Because I feel like if you can cope with that pressure, and we can learn from it, that's quite helpful to maybe all of us. So are you aware of the pressure? And how do you cope?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that you make a really, really good point about resilience and the pressure that you face. And I think sometimes you can separate it into two things. There can be the pressure that you're experiencing at a really difficult point in time. And then there's also the kind of cumulative effects of pressure. I like the pressure that you were talking about, Pip, that you experience when day to day you're responsible for so much and you've got so many people that are relying on you. And I think that it's almost like stress, isn't it? You have that acute stress and then you can have that very chronic stress. And I think they're very different things. I think if I talk first of all about that resilience that you might have at a really difficult point in time, that moment. I think what I would say is you're all stronger than you think you are, first and foremost. Whatever happens, even if it turns out terribly, the world will still turn, the sun will still rise, and tomorrow will always come. So although it feels uncomfortable at the time, put one foot in front of the other, and you'll still carry on. And I think in terms of the more chronic stress, that more chronic pressure, and how you build the resilience to that, I think that certainly from my perspective, Whatever you do, day on day, day on day, you will always find a new gear. And if you do it long enough, that new gear becomes your steady gear. And then you will find you'll have more. I mean, when I was doing my PhD, I was still serving as a firefighter. So I'd go in the lab at half past five in the morning. I would run my experiments and then I'd go into work. I'd pull a full shift in the fire service. I'd go home. I'd put my little girl to bed. And she was just born. Yeah, because I don't like to make it easy on myself, do I? So I'd put her to bed and then I'd go back in the lab for the night shift. And I would be there until kind of like 12, one o'clock in the morning sometimes, mainly because stuff would break and no one is around to fix it at 12, one o'clock in the morning. So I don't know whether I did a PhD in neuroscience or blinking engineering at one point. But at the time, when I first thought about it, I thought, wow, this is going to be really hard. I don't know how I'm going to cope. But actually, when you find that you do cope, it doesn't feel as bad as you first anticipate it. And then you have a new normal.
2: And is that level of pressure and all of those different areas, pressure of being a new parent, pressure of being a student, pressure of being a, kind of a working professional with a job, do you think that was a sustainable level of pressure like, or do you think that was a peak and then I had to kind of get into a new gear and then settle again and maybe find
1: another peak? Like to, that's a lot to do ongoing. Yeah, it totally is. And you can't sustain, if you're experiencing a level of pressure, you can't sustain that in the long term. So it was always peaks and troughs. So I'd be running an experiment. I'd be doing that for like two, three weeks and then I'd tail off. But there's also stuff that you can do outside of that to help you to manage your stress and to relax as well. So trying to find time for yourself is really important. And certainly as working parents, that's really hard because any time that you have to yourself, you feel instantly guilty about because you think, oh my goodness, I should be spending it with my family. But what I tended to do is involve my family in anything that I was doing. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I decided to write the book and we started to do all of this additional work, my family comes with me everywhere I go. So I've got my daughter here and my husband there. And they come with me and do all of these amazing things. And if you get to do amazing things or if you find a hobby that you love or some way to relax, actually, when you can share that with people that you love, it's even better.
2: Mm. And in terms of your resilience, your life experience, because that was such a hard life experience and you know reading about it you so you were homeless and you were studying for I think your GCSEs I was reading about in doorways and then going into school to take your GCSEs and getting A stars and A's and B's despite all of that like your resilience through that time finding a way to get yourself accommodation a way to get employment getting into the fire service that personal experience has that helped you to be resilient as now kind of a working adult?
1: I dispute the adult bit, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, I think, yes, it has. So, I mean, to give you the backstory there, I experienced homelessness when I was 15. It was just before I was 16. And the reason that I tried to maintain a facade of a normal life is because I really didn't want to go into care. I was brought up to kind of mistrust those authority figures, and I thought that care was going to be some kind of 1720s, Dickensian, frightening place. So I did everything in my power to hide the fact that I was experiencing homelessness hence I would carry on going to school. But I think that experience that I had of homelessness was so horrendous. Honestly, I cannot describe it to you, it was so awful and so dehumanising that I think that whatever happens now, getting out of it was so tough. I mean, it took me three attempts to get secure and stable accommodation. I'd get somewhere and then it would fall through and I'd get somewhere else and it would fall through again. So three attempts before I had a proper roof over my head. And I think when you live with that kind of consistent experience of failure, then you begin to realise that whatever happens, actually it's not as bad as the thing that you'd already survived. So when I first joined the fire service when I was 18, which was a dream job to me, because I think from my perspective, the incredible thing about being a firefighter is you're trusted by people to know what to do when they're having, quite frankly, the worst day of their lives. And it felt to me like I'd had quite a few years of the worst day of mine so I could relate to it, how people were feeling and I wanted to be part of the helping party for that so I joined the fire service and I've got to admit initially I wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms I mean I joined there were seven women I was woman number seven and 1700 guys and it was in
2: the UK uh, fire service. this was
1: in the, the service that I was in okay so you know there weren't very many of us and there was certainly in the region that i was there was a overarching culture that actually we don't think it's a job for women and people would say that very openly to me they'd be like yeah sorry i don't think it's a it's a job for women no offense to you and after a while i'd be like yeah well i don't think it's the job for morons but here we are you know no (laughs) offense mate oh i tell you but i'd experienced sexual harassment i had unsolicited and very inappropriate picture sent to my phone, except for in this guy's defence, it was a very small phone in those days, so, you know, I won't judge or anything. Um, and I've been told that not to bother going for the promotion because I don't have a... Mm. Mm-hmm. And after about the fourth time this guy said it, I said, well, I might not have a... But I'm clearly working for one, which is kind of the same handicap in my book. I knew then my future lay. back. LAUGHTER But I will caveat that by saying this actually represented a really small amount of my time in the fire service. You know, it's been an amazing career. I've worked with more incredible people than, you know, the minority of people that I'm just describing to you. And I've worked with people who are still to this day like my big brothers and who've believed in me so strongly that I've been able to do things I never thought I was capable of doing. So, you know, it has been absolutely incredible But that early period where I had experienced some of that negativity, that was really tough. But I fought so hard for that job. I had... Thirty-one rejection letters before I got in the fire service. I tried and failed thirty-one times before I got there. So there's no way that I was going to give someone with a little bit of prejudice the opportunity to take that away from me after what I'd worked for.
2: I think bias in the workplace, which you had, at, you know, an extreme at a young age, affects people's well-being. All of that kind of bias. Massively. Uh, is there any advice that you've? Laid? It sounds to me that you you confronted it when you saw it. You said it, and you you know you fought to change it, and you were very driven to change that bias and not let it hold you back. Is there anything else, any kind of wisdom in bias in the workplace that you could share with people here or people listening that might help them that might be affecting their well-being at work?
1: Yeah, of course. And it does affect your well-being. It's tough. I lost count of the number of times that I cried myself to sleep because I didn't know how to respond to this. And I'm quite ashamed to say now that there's a lot that happened that I didn't call out at the time because, do you know what? I was young, I was insecure, and I felt like the balance of power was against me. And actually, whether you're being discriminated against because of it's a protected characteristic or for any other reason, we've all experienced situations where there's a power dynamic and a power relationship, and we don't feel like we can challenge it. And that's really hard. What I would say to people is if you're in that position... Don't keep it to yourself. Reach out to others. Because if you're experiencing it, actually you can be sure that other people are or other people can see it. So find allies. And speak truth to power. Don't be afraid to speak truth to power. And certainly in my position now, as a chief fire officer, as a leader... In the Fire and Rescue Service, I work really hard to try to create an environment where people feel that they can challenge those power relationships. And it's difficult to know whether it's going to be completely embedded and and you're always going to be able to create that. But being aware of it and challenging that is so important. The other thing that just really strikes me, listening to
0: actually all three of your stories, and we're starting to notice more and more of it, I think, in Squiggly Careers, is just this idea of grit. You know, that kind of the passion and perseverance to get to something that you really believe in, whether that is a personal project, whether that's a side project, whether that's starting a charity, building a business from scratch when, you know, you come from a very kind of different background or starting point, just listening to you all, you're all incredibly gritty. You're kind of going, I have got the perseverance and the determination. And you're putting that together with having the right support. So sometimes I think people think of that first one of being like driven and wanting to deliver something, oh, but I've got to do that singularly or solely whereas actually I feel like all three of you put those two areas together which I think is really reassuring and kind of refreshing so that you can do something with purpose that you all really believe I think in what you do but you've not had to do it all by yourselves uh, we always try to finish our podcasts with best pieces of career advice so this can either be advice that you've been given that has been brilliant that's really stuck and you come back to time and time again or perhaps you then end up giving it to lots of other people or it could just be your own career advice so Sabrina, as you're going if you were giving
1: everybody here and everyone listening your one bit of career advice what would you choose i think for me it would be own your failures with as much conviction as as your success. So there's a couple of reasons for this. The first one is that you will always learn more from the things that you do wrong than the things that you do right. And I have monumentally failed on a number of occasions. And the only reason that I can claim any success is because every time I failed, I have got up again. But there's a more important bit for me about owning your failures. And it's one about your ethics and your values. When you own your failure, you're taking accountability. And if I'm with someone that can't own their failure, I can't trust them not to claim a success that's not theirs. Very powerful. Pip, follow that. <laughs> oh, I've made it hard. No pressure.
4: Please. Um, mine's from somebody else. Actually, she was another female CEO in the food and drink sector that gave me this advice. It was about finding your flow. I think this applies whether you're in running a business or in your own career, uh, wherever it is, but it's about really kind of being conscious when you're going through your day or weeks about where it is that you get your energy from and really kind of tapping into that. Because I say that because there are so many aspects of running a business where I am not particularly skilled at and it's like pushing a rock up a hill and trying to recognise when are those moments where you're doing that versus there's moments where it's just free-flowing and easy. So for me, brand, marketing, product innovation, PR, this sort of stuff, like it really gives me energy and I come out bouncing. If I'm stuck dealing with manufacturing contracts, legals, I literally, it's like wading through mud and I find myself sluggish and slow and it's a feeling that you feel. Um, so I think trying to connect to that and then figure out how do you make the bits that get your flow a bigger part of your working week and yes there will always be things that you find hard and challenging don't always lean away from it but make sure that you're not just when you're particularly hiring people only giving away the stuff that you really enjoy and then you're left with like just a load of contracts to read through um so that's my piece of
0: advice (laughs) definitely when we talk to people about finding their flow we'll often say even if you just map a week and just think about those moments where you just felt at your happiest you almost kind of lost sense of time it's often where you're using your strengths your values are kind of really showing up you feel just really motivated and driven and that can be as small as like a half an hour meeting with someone and you think oh why why that half an hour why did I feel so good and then you start to figure out and then why was that half an hour kind of so bad it's like where do you radiate versus where do you feel kind of really drained and I think that's a really smart practical strategy as well about going incrementally spending as much of your time kind of in flow as possible while recognizing you all have those moments of thinking I just have to get the invoices out <laughs> just a practical example there from us you yeah, know. exactly it's very, true. it's very true Tom how about you
3: I don't know. Well, something I always used to say when I'm talking to barbers and I'm talking to my staff, I used to have in the salons is about spending your time wisely, because everybody has 168 hours a week, 24 hours a day. You know, whether you're Richard Branson or you're Tom Chapman, it's how you spend your time, isn't it? And I'd say to them, like, if you take an hour of your day after you've, especially when the guys were training, so you go to college a couple of days a week, and then you're in the salon doing hair, doing models, whatever that may be, if you spend an hour, an extra hour a day doing that, you're going to be, that's like seven hours a week, that's a whole another working day every week, you're going to be ahead of everybody else in your class. And you, we miss out on one episode of Game of Thrones that night or whatever that may be, just swap that time out. And it's not actually that much more work effort to put in. Just that extra hour and you're going to be so much better than everybody else around you. I don't think it's that difficult, you know, in the hair industry to be better than the next one if you just put a bit of extra time because a lot of people just do the bare minimum. They'll do what's expected of them and go, oh, that's enough, that'll do.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how much effort and hard work Actually matters and makes a difference when people talk to us about uh, side projects because our business started as a side project. They'll say like, "Well, how did you manage to do that?" And I'll say, "Well, most of it is just like effort and hard work. I would say plus doing something you're really interested in. I think if you probably if you're spending that hour on something you're not enjoying, you're always going to put the Game of Thrones episode first. Whereas if you're spending that hour and you think, yes, it might be tough and it might be the end of a long day, but actually it's something I enjoy and I care about." And then it's kind of adding that, the effort and the kind of hard work. That's, I think, when it really pays off for people.
3: Definitely, I I wrote my first book that I self-published in between if I had a client that no-showed or my lunch breaks or when I was travelling for work on an aeroplane or whatever. And they're like, how did you do that? I said, well, just did it in, sat there watching a film that I didn't really care about on the plane for six hours. I was actually doing something productive.
2: So we're at the end of the podcast now. Thank you very much for being here and being part of the live recording. Thank you so much to our guests, to Tom and to Pip and Sabrina. We really appreciate you sharing your perspectives and giving us your time. And we know that lots and lots of people are going to benefit from it. So thank you very much. To stay in touch with Squiggly Careers and Amazing If, follow us on Instagram. We do daily career tips on Instagram. Lots of like really short things to help you with your career. Uh, You can find us on Twitter where we're just at amazing underscore if. Thank you very, very much for being here tonight. Thank you all so much air for coming. We really, really do appreciate
1: it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
3: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do.